Hello everyone and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we cast our all-seeing eye over the world of comic book adaptations and try to sort the super from the substandard. Who's we? Well, I'm your host Andrew and usually I'm joined by my co-host Mick. However, this week he's busy being shown the final secret truths of the Freebasins in their new temporary <laughs> secret headwaters just at the abandoned little chef just off the A19. So instead... Troop side icon, that. It is indeed. That's that's a niche joke that, like, one person is going <laughs> to get. And that is the person who's probably just recording the podcast with me, which is our recurring <laughs> guest, Graham. Hello there, yes. So, how are you doing today, Graham? Okay, it's been uh, quite a nice sunny day, which is unusual for this time of year, so I thought what better way to spend it than sitting inside watching Victorian sex workers get horribly murdered. I know. I mean, like, what else are you going to do? Go in that sun? No, thank you. <laughs> yes, baby. So, yes, I've also had a good old time watching some horrible, horrible murders on a nice sunny day. But uh, had less of a fun time trying to figure out just any sort of like leading I can use from said horrible murders to keep things like vaguely family friendly. <laughs> so I guess now it's time for us to just tuck into some lovely grapes as we behold Mm-mm. from hell. Yes, is this the first Alan Moore thing that we've done? Um. I think it might be. I guess it would depend on whether or not you count the uh, the Watchmen TV series. Ah, yes. Yeah. But that's not technically based off the Alan Moore comic. Or is, but is a sequel. Mm. It's, it's a, yeah, a great it heavy be... in the podcast. It's, it's the first direct adaptation, let's say. Yes, I think it must be the first direct adaptation, because I can't remember any previous episodes where, like, angry druidic chanting has been going on in the background as we tried to talk about it. <laughs> yes. Because as, uh, as with all adaptations of his work, Alan Moore bloody hates this film. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because uh, I yeah. remember... We should probably say what we're doing. Have we said that yet? We have, haven't we? Yes, we have. But just to fill in some of the, the details, this is the 2001 yes. film directed by Albert and Alan Hughes, written by Terry Hayes and Rafael Iglesias, and based on the 1989 series by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. Mm-hmm. And yeah. thank goodness I did say Eddie Campbell, not Bruce. <laughs> Although, what, man, what a comic book that would be. Alan Moore and Bruce Campbell. I, 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 obviously, I know physical appearance doesn't translate to actual artistic ability. But man, I hope everyone in that would just have gigantic chains. I mean, he'd struggle to draw it with one arm being a chainsaw. I don't know, I guess you just gotta dip it in some ink. <laughs> yes. Kind of rub it up and just start flicking things at the... I think it could be a fun abstract new work of art. 
Yes, Bruce Campbell is our Eva's Jackson Pollock. We've established that. That's good. See, once again, behold, providing important public services. <laughs> we, we need some kind of educational grant. Absolutely, yes. And I think we're probably going to earn it with this because as, as we were discussing uh before we went on end, not only am I an Alan Moore bore, I am also rapidly becoming a bit of a Jack the Ripper bore, I'm afraid. Yes, this, I mean, my notes for this podcast are just, and then Graham talks for 30 minutes about Jack the Ripper and or Alan Moore. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. So with that, I have to ask the fateful question. Graham, are you familiar with From Hell, the comic book? Do you know, I think I might just be, uh, because not only uh, am I a huge fan of Alan Moore, but this is almost certainly my favourite work by Alan Moore, that when there is that gold rush on to find out which comic books are good enough to stand alongside your giants of world literature like War and Peace and Moby Dick and the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> all the greats, um, From Hell is the one that I always choose as being absolutely you know pinch and level good but with pictures do i hate some people aren't going to realize the joke you've made there (laughs) yes yeah it's uh it's risking my reputation on a rule of three gag but i thought it was worth it that's very fair but yes no i i recently because it has been like quite a lot of years since i've read from hell did um mm. Bion comicsology the kind of masterworks edition they put out with all the you know annotations and little side things as well oh, yes just because yeah i mean if you're gonna go for a meal you go for the feast absolutely I'm yes really just rereading it now going oh yes that's right this is about like weird conspiracy theories and jack the ripper this is possibly the most Graham thing I've ever read. <laughs> it's true. But the, the density of From Hell is incredible. It's like, if you can get hold of an edition of it with, at the very least, Alan Moore's end notes in it, it does impress upon you what a depth of research and meaning there is in every single panel of this comic. Yes, I think it's it's very... So well, I'd say probably even more so than Watchmen, just in the regards of you really do need to read the supplementary stuff to kind of get the full appreciation of what's going on. Definitely. And I, I think that's sometimes a bit a bit of a cop-out, and I think a comic should stand on its own. But I think From Hell does, but it gets to this point where the level of erudition required to get every single thing that Moore is saying is a level possessed by one man, and that's Alan Moore. So, you know, g- give yourself a leg up. Yes, exactly. And it's not something like, say, the later like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics, where it's just like, do, do you have an encyclopedic knowledge of Victorian-era Pulp Fiction and Penny Dreadfuls? Then just don't even bother. This is not a comic for you. Yeah. The later League of Extraordinary Gentlemen stuff was exactly what I was thinking of when I said that. It, it does kind of become a, a, 
almost in the comic is almost an annotation to Jess Nevin's annotations at this point. Yeah, just some weird Ouroboros of naked Harry Potter shooting magic from his junk. <laughs> You've made it sound a lot better than it is, in my opinion, but yes. I'm sorry, listeners, I've maybe given you the wrong impression of the effects for you gentlemen by just cherry-picking out the best bit from the Eta comics. <laughs> yeah. But From Hell is built around an idea that even if you don't grasp all the levels that it operates on is actually sort of quite enticing and appealing, which is that Jack the Ripper, whoever he may be, is not very important. What matters is that Jack the Ripper is this sort of nexus point where everything in Victorian society that had been bubbling under for a long time, whether it's, you know, the the class system, the emerging power of the press, police corruption, everything just collides together in this really horrific way. Yes, and also that, that stuff may have been bubbling up since, like, the very founding of England as a country... And also time is all occurring at once. And like certain events leave psychic impression scars that just keep on recurring throughout the ages. This is what we mean when we say it's a dense book. Definitely, yeah. And in fact, my my favourite bit of it is maybe the densest bit, which is the whole chapter where... (laughs) Spoilers for um, a comic that basically lets you know who Jack the Ripper is as soon as possible. But... um, when William Gull is showing his coach driver around the sites where he plans to murder the five women and explaining the occult significance of each one. And it's one of those wonderful things that Alan Moore often gets away with, where this stuff is dense and fascinating and rich and you can read up on it and find out how carefully it's researched and you can take it very seriously but it is put in the mouth of a character who is mad and thinks he is conducting an occult ritual to enshrine patriarchy so you know there's a there's a bit of wiggle room in it Moober is good at having things both ways I think yeah exactly especially I think some of like the actual facts in that lecture as well hmm. like looking upon them now you can go well no that's that's not really quite right like a lot of ancient societies did still have like a patriarchal sky god but also again hmm. the character saying these things is absolutely fruit loops yeah and also, for anyone who is kind of sceptical about this side of Mua, Mua implicates himself in it too, you know, there is a level where From Hell is about the ridiculousness of thinking you can find out who Jack the Ripper is at this remove, that Eddie Campbell, I think, had a famous quote about it where he said, Jack the Ripper is whoever managed to get out when they forgot to lock the asylum door. And that's true. If we found out who Jack the Ripper was definitively tomorrow, the answer would probably not be that interesting, but the overlaying levels of obsession and interpretation that people have put on these five fairly squalid murders is a remarkable social phenomenon. Yeah, and that phenomenon is basically what magic is. Yes, yes, I 
I love that Alan Moore is capable of writing things about magic which sort of make you think, oh yeah, that's that's just common sense stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically our own minds are the true face of God, aren't they? Essentially, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that we can finally get these great questions of the universe cleared up in a sort of pragmatic way by a man who famously worships a Roman glove puppet. I mean, something about all, all prophets are called madmen in their own time. <laughs> yes, and if you want to be a prophet, you'd better get to work on being called a madman. Again, sage words of wisdom from, once again, Jack the Ripper, famous Victorian murderer. <laughs> yes. So this was, um, I'm sure we'll get back into the comic as we get into the film, but this was the first big screen adaptation of Moore's work, right? Um, yes, certainly the first big screen adaptation of like Moore's own so basically something he had created yeah i think there were like i think one or two like really god-awful low budget swamping movies oh yes yeah i forgot about those yeah and i suppose you could make an argument that tim burton's batman is visibly influenced by the ideas in the killing joke but again i don't think you could really call it an adaptation Yes, I mean, I think that's certainly skirting to towards like a bigger problem in comic book films of, you know, who exactly do you credit? Because it's clearly not just the creators that you're taking influence from. Hmm, completely. But this is a, a, a graphic novel, if we can still use that phrase. I am aware it has its discontents. And it is written by Alan Moore, illustrated by Eddie Campbell, and the film is definitely aiming to adapt this text. Yes, indeed. And that's that's again why we, well, I was gonna say why we've done like less of a background stuff because it's more of a one-to-one -one thing. But again, there's so hmm. much of from hell to talk about. Oh god, I know. Yeah, it's um it, it's not something that I would relish summarising. It's not something I would relish adapting, really, which makes it very strange that it was first out the gates. Yes, and indeed, I think that's maybe something that's going to come up when we're discussing the film. Completely, yeah. I mean, had you seen it before this? I had seen it before this. I'll admit, mm. the first time I watched it, I really did not care for it at all i thought it was incredibly boring but right. i think certainly watching it again if nothing else i can appreciate a lot more the craft that went into this film see i'm the other way i saw it when it first came out at the cinemas and i found it really sort of exciting and fascinating um, over time, I have accepted that maybe it's a guilty pleasure, and watching it again, I've found slightly less pleasure and slightly more guilt, if I'm honest. Well, speaking of your crimes and the crimes of others, shall I, <laughs> shall I get into a yes. synopsis? Why not? Why not? So, uh, as always, there will be full spoilers for the film, but I mean, also, we've kind of already revealed who Jack the Ripper is. 
which isn't a spoiler in the comics at all. It's amazing. It's like the biggest mystery of the 21st century and he just comes straight out the gate with it. Yes, it's literally chapter two where we learn who Jack the Ripper is. <laughs> so anyway, from Hell the Film. The year is 1888. Mary Kelly, Heather Graham, and her fellow prostitutes turn to their friend Anne Crook, Joanna Page, in the hopes that she can love her wealthy husband Eddie, played by Mark Dexter, to pay off their debts to a local gangster. However, the girls are unwittingly stepping into a vast conspiracy. Eddie is in fact Prince Albert Victor, Queen Victoria's grandson. As Albert is dying of syphilis, that makes his and Anne's daughter Alice, played by a baby, Heir <laughs> to the British throne. Yes. The Freemasons kidnap Anne and have her lobotomized, and the other prostitutes find themselves stalked by the mysterious killer Jack the Ripper, who begins murdering them to cover up the truth about Alice. Uh, opium, opium addicted detective Sherlock, sorry, Frederick Aberline, played by Johnny Depp, <laughs> is placed in charge of investigating the murders. He visits the. He visits the royal surgeon, Sir William Gull, Ian Holm, and learns that the Ripper must be someone with medical experience due to the precise nature of the murders and, and dismemberments. Uh, as he investigates further, Aveline meets Mary, and the two fall in love with the passionate intensity of two pieces of driftwood bumping into each other in a current. Yes, that's completely true. Despite being taken off the case, Aberline continues to investigate. <laughs> uh, eventually putting the pieces together through hard work and intelligent methodology. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. He has a bunch of psychic visions and figures out that the Ripper is Sir William himself. But he is captured by the Freemasons before he can kill Sir William. Aberline escapes but it's too late to stop Gull from killing Mary. Or so he thinks. The final Ripper victim is actually another girl who is sleeping in Mary's bed. Mary herself is able to escape with Alice to the village in Ireland where Mary grew up. Uh, with his work seemingly complete, the Freemasons turn on Sir William and have him lobotomized. Mary then writes to Abilene, telling him to join her, but he realises he can't because if he was to leave London, it would tip off the Freemasons that Mary is alive and put her and Alice in danger. Uh, despondent at losing someone who the film would very much like you to believe is the love of his life, <laughs> Aberline returns to the opium and takes a lethal dose. Yeah, and when you describe the story like that, I think... On paper, the Yabberline and Mary storyline sounds pretty good, and they managed to get a quite impressively downbeat ending for a Hollywood film out of it. And yet... And yet, God, those, those are two people who sure exist in each other's presence. They really are, yes. It's funny that, because maybe one of the things when I saw it was that I just accepted that there was this forced love story in, because, eh, you know, it's a movie. Movies do that. But now there is there are quite a lot of films 
that are very mainstream Hollywood productions that don't really have any romantic element at all. You know, the Marvel movies mostly don't. The Mission Impossible movies mostly don't. So it, it's one of those things where looking back, you think, okay, we've proved that you don't need to shoehorn this in. Why did you... Yeah, I, I guess yeah, it, it is just a very old attitude that thankfully, as you say, we do seem to have moved past of, no, we have to have a love story. Yes. And it's, uh, no, so well, that's, that's me being even too lenient on Hollywood. We have to have a heterosexual love story. Yes, two people uh, brought together by the... Uh, pressures and strains of maintaining their accents. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's what bonds them together, is them just trying to out-ridiculous each maybe. other's accents. Because, <laughs> I mean, Johnny Depp is like, it, it's not a bad accent, but I, I was sceptical about whether it, it undercuts the film's portrayal of the Victorian police force as being absolutely hidebound by snobbery, uh, to have their best inspector sound like he's about to burst out in a chorus of when I'm cleaning windows. Yes, he's so... He's so... Watch your governor, there's been a murder! <laughs> well, I think the problem was I kept forgetting yeah. that was his accent. Like when he was just staring brutally in a scene and then he would open his mouth. Yeah, it, it's it's a very brooding, starey performance from Depp, isn't it, actually, now you mention it, yes. Is that, I feel like that's definitely the strength of what he got hired on. It's strange, too, because this comes at a point in Depp's career when he was certainly a name and he was certainly an actor where you could get a movie off the ground by having him attached to it. But at the same time, you sort of think his his screen persona is starting to solidify a bit. It's heading a bit towards Jack Sparrow, even though Pirates of the Caribbean was still a couple of years away. He's not the mercurial weirdo that he was in something like Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, he's kind of like. When is this around like Edward Scissorhands' time? This is about ten years after Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands was, I think, I'm right in saying, like his first big movie role, his first lead. Actually, geez, yeah, because I guess that was early nineties, wasn't it? And this was two thousand. So despite saying it at the start of the episode, I kind of forgot this was 2001. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's part of that odd part of the noughties where you can definitely tell that the 90s had not properly ended yet. It's a very Woodstock 99 take on the Jack the Ripper story in a lot of ways. Yes, indeed, and... Shall we get into some of the more specifics? Yeah, I think so, yes. Because I think... Well, probably the first thing to say to give it its dues 
is that some of the parts mm. of this film look absolutely phenomenal. They really do, yeah. And this is quite early on in the age of digital colour correction. Oh, brother, where art thou? Which is widely hailed as being the first movie to use full digital colour correction throughout, only came out a year before this. And the cinematographer is Peter Deming, who worked on Mulholland Drive and the last series of Twin Peaks. So, you know, if you want someone to shoot an ominous shadow, shadowy alleyway with something horrible at the end of it. Oh boy, he can do that. And I mean, he certainly fills his boots with this film. Yeah, I mean, the, the runtime is upwards of 90% ominous shadowy alleyways. I think it's that. And what I really love is that one scene right at the start where it's kind of Abilene in the opium den, and then it fades out to London, but you can kind of still see his eyes over, like, the horrible blood-red yes. sky. Yes, that that is fantastic. And I think Abilene's visions in general are good. I have some qualms over their use. As you hinted at the start, Abilene is a detective who does remarkably little actual detecting, which makes him kind of hard to root for. But I, I do think those are really scratchy, trippy horror scenes that have just landed in the middle of a big studio picture, and I do appreciate that. Uh, yes, certainly the visions themselves I like a lot. I think my Two big problems are kind of the one we've sort of talked about already of it does seem very much like it's just a convenient way of this film already has too long a runtime. Let's cut out any scene <laughs> where like Abilene would have to, you know, think about things or explain stuff and just go, has a vision, on to the next bit. Yes, definitely. And also yeah. it's one of those things, like quite a lot of things in this film, where because they've tried to cut down a very dense story, it makes the rest of the characters seem like absolute imbeciles. Like, if you were the head of a police department engaged in a conspiracy to help murder these women, and you had to assign a, a detective to nominally work the case, why would you choose the, like, uncanny gifted one like who literally can ensue it just by looking at a crime scene who has done it through literal psychic abilities yeah i could buy that if the rest of the police force thought that abilene's visions were nonsense and he was just a deluded junkie but then that raises the question of why when the investigation hots up and they realize they've got a serial killer on their hands why is he like lecturing crowds of cadets about where the killer will strike next it's it, again, I hate to keep bringing this back around, but it is a very 90s vision of the criminal profiler as almost this kind of magically insightful guy, compounded by the fact that you do have Robbie Coltrane in this film, and it's almost like, you know, Cracker is hunting the Ripper now. Yeah, but, but instead he just kind of stands at the side and nags at Johnny Depp a bit. 
And he's good in that, I think. He has most of the script's best lines, and I, yeah, I kind of wished he'd been the lead instead. Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's because I think I read somewhere that Eddie Campbell, um, when he was drawing From Hell the Comic Book, he actually based mm. Abilene off Robbie Coltrane. Oh, well, that makes a certain kind of sense, yeah, because, I mean, what, what we're what we're sort of talking around here is the question of who is the lead in the comic book from hell and that's quite a hard question to answer isn't it yes because in a lot of ways it is actually sir william himself yes yeah and yeah and i guess i mean i can kind of understand that especially in 2001 like you, you can't really do a big budget hollywood film where Jack the Ripper is your protagonist, you do need Avalon as more traditional leading man. I think you would struggle to get it off the ground even today. I mean, the centerpiece chapter of From Hell is essentially a recreation of Gull murdering Mary Kelly, or is she? And it's a remarkably powerful and horrifying thing. And it's just, I, I can't imagine, like, people think Joker's very edgy now, but I cannot imagine a major Hollywood film where, like, the third act opens with our hero just dismembering this woman for Oh, ages. yeah, no, no, I'm certainly thinking today you could maybe do it, like, through A24 or something. So, but so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No Warner Brothers of the House of Mouse are not putting this film out. God, no, no, not even in the form that it exists in now. But yes, certainly I think, like I say, it's, just, it's a big problem of this film. Is that I think you're losing a lot of connective tissue from the, from the graphic novel. So lots of things just don't make that much sense. Yeah, I agree. It's like, one of the things that I, I found myself thinking as I went back through it is I can't actually tell at what point the movie wants you to understand that Gull is the killer. Yeah, and I mean, obviously it's kind of hard to be objective about, you know, having read the, the comic beforehand, so knowing that he is the killer... Hmm. But it does seem very yeah. obvious. It, it's it's one of those things where it is kind of fudged. You mentioned that there were two screenwriters, uh, Terry Hayes and Raphael Iglesias, and I did start to wonder if there there was like one of them who turned in a draft where it is obvious that it is Gull from the start, and one of them turned in a draft that was more of a traditional whodunit, and they just tried to fudge them together during production, because it does feel a lot like that to me. Yes, I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised, or even if it was just maybe it was in the original plan and then had to be retooled further down the line. Yeah, conceivably, yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, you, you say that Gull is close to the protagonist of the comic book, and I think that's true. I think there are a lot of bits in the comic book that are 
only accessible through a particular character's point of view. But Gull is, I think, the only one where you can see there are two whole chapters that are just from his perspective, the court ride and the Mary Kelly murder. And, yeah, I, I think that does confer a protagonist status on him, which is hard to unpick. Aside from anything else, there's a late bit where Gull suddenly starts talking to Abilene about what's underneath this city, and you think, well, what are you on about? Where did that come from? Because there's no organic build-up to that in the movie. Yeah, and again, I think it's maybe there was like a draft of the film where there was more of a build-up. And as they've realised, no, mm. we just can't fit. I mean, because like the Masterworks edition, it's like nearly 600 pages long. And each one of those pages yes, is yeah. just packed with like Victorian area trivia, weird occult theories and like horrible murder stuff. That they've just they've clearly tried to yes. take just a lot of the big moments from it, but it's just ended up being very very disjointed. And it's one of those things where I used to cut this film a bit of slack on the sort of spectrum of Alan Moore adaptations because the book is totally unadaptable, and I don't say that lightly. Um, it's it's not a situation like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie where you read the first volume of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and you think, well, that's the best action movie never filmed, and yet somehow they managed to bugger it up. This isn't like that, but I, I do think there are certain changes that just remove a bit of the texture from Moore and Campbell's vision of Victorian life. And I think that the idea of having Abilene as the central character isn't a bad one. I think if you're going to look for a sympathetic hero in that book, Abilene's probably your best shot, but it, it does hurt the thing that his characterization, his behaviour, his methods of detection just do not connect in any meaningful way with what Moore and Campbell were trying to say about Victorian society and are, as I've said, very much that kind of 1990s cult of the profile of as a, as a kind of mystic visionary. Yeah, it's definitely, I think a lot of it as well is this shallow, we've read from hell, from hell has weird magic stuff in it, Therefore, we need to put weird magic stuff in our film without realising, like, why that's in there. Yeah, completely. I mean, one of some of my favourite bits in From Hell are the little isolated moments where William Gull has a vision of 20th century life. And at first you think this is just a, a sort of fancy of Moore's. It is the kind of mystical tangent that he's inclined to go on. But in the end notes, it reveals that he he found specific reports of people seeing a ghost that looked like a man from the Victorian era in, say, 1956. And what those sections are doing is showing you 
that vision from the other end of the telescope is showing you gull seeing someone seeing a ghost in 1956 which is is wonderful and i i you know there aren't end notes to this movie it's possible that some of these visions that are in the film are the product of similar research but frankly i doubt it yes and again even if they are because you've not got like a whole appendix with you they just come off as like fairly meaningless mm. yeah essentially yeah um i'll tell you what i think did work actually uh, what i enjoyed quite a lot this time round uh, which is the performances of the women who play the victims and their friends. Yes, I, I thought they were all... Well, I say oh, all. David Graham's... I mean, apart from accent, she's pretty all right. But yeah, definitely the supporting cast, they are uh, very good. I'm just going to bring up who they are. There's some, there's some good names in there. There's the late uh, Catherine Cartledge, who was in Oranges and Not the Only Fruit and Four Weddings and a Few... No, wait, I'm thinking of the wrong person, aren't I? Catherine Cartledge was um, a, a Mike Lee regular, and she also played a sex worker in a very strange film called... Was it Claire Dolan or something like that? Um I'm getting two people mixed up just because they've died, I think, which is uh, unfortunate. Oh, no, Claire Dolan. Yes, she was in Claire Dolan by Lodge Kerrigan. Um, and, and she was a really intense, interesting actress who, who sadly died very young. But um, she's very good in this as Annie Chapman. Uh, and I really enjoyed Susan Lynch as Liz Stride. I think Susan Lynch gives a little jolt of electricity to everything she's in. And that's certainly true here. I think even when her situation is at the gravest, she's the the one who is kind of having fun with this and who is saying, yeah, let's blackmail the rich man. It'll be a great payday. You're aware from the start that this is horribly misguided, but the fun she's having with it is infectious, I think. Yes, and Susan Lynch, she's very much one of those, like, even if you don't know her name, you've seen her in things and you will absolutely recognise her. Completely, yeah. She's got a really distinctive, striking look that isn't like anyone else on screen. I think it's her, it's, yeah, Kate from Couch, then we've got Annabelle Apsion as Polly Nichols and Leslie Sharp as Kate Eddowes. Hmm. Yeah, and there was one piece of casting in there as well um, as the Belgian woman who Liz Stride has a relationship with, which occasioned a lot of comment on release because it's Estelle Skornik, who was a model who at the time was mainly famous for a series of Renault Clio commercials that became a sort of national obsession because, hey, you know, the internet's still bedding in, we were all still watching TV. And everyone found that very distracting, but I have to say, coming back to it, uh, that's one of the least distracting bits because there were some amazing before they were famous spots in here, aren't there? I know, yeah, I think I genuinely cheered a little bit when the mobsters enforcer showed up and it's Ralph Innocent. Yes! Ralph Innocent, who is like second only to Michael Smiley at the moment as one of the defining faces of modern British horror. Yeah, defining, and defining voices as well. 
Yes, definitely. Yeah. Because of course Reunite himself. Exactly. Yes, I just saw that. And of course that's I mean, apparently he was in the costume, but if you recognise that actor at all, you recognise him because he has this extraordinary voice. Yeah, just this deep booming baritone of a voice. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Um Joanna Page as well as Anne Crook, the woman whose pregnancy gets all this started off. Um, that's a kind of a... I don't know. I, I stopped watching Gavin and Stacey after a bit. I didn't realise it got this dark. Yeah, I mean, apart from that, I think the, the problem for me with Joanna Page mm. is that bit where she is having sex with Prince Albert. Oh, boy, yeah. Very reminiscent of Love Actually, isn't it? (laughs) It really is, yeah. I would not be at all surprised if that was the movie she was, like, drawing on for that Love Actually subplot because it is is some ripe kind of saxophone on the soundtrack sex scenes with loads of hair tossing and writhing and, oh, boy, it's not good. No, no, it really isn't. Because the equivalent scene in the comic is, I believe, the first of many uh, graphic depictions of penetration in an Alan Moore comic, uh, which got issue one confiscated by customs when it was first published, I heard. Yeah, I mean, it it does include the phrase, pull on my pogo. (laughs) Yes! Yeah, and I, I can understand the Hughes brothers thinking, oh, well, we definitely can't shoot that. But I think they have overcorrected significantly. Like, they've toned down the sort of grubby pornographic quality of it so much that it does resemble an unusually racy late-night condom commercial. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very out of place. Yeah. It's also it's a shame because I feel like that sex scene in the comic kind of distracts people from the real, like, ridiculous graphic sex scene. Which is, of course, the one between special guest appearance Hitler's parents. Oh, boy, yeah. I mean, that's a tangent that the, the movie would really struggle to get to, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. It's already, like, over two hours long. It has to cut something. But, man, I, I kind of love that picture. It's just like, what the... What? Who? What? what huh? <laughs> this is... Yeah, I mean... Who because it's like, you, just, you read it and you just go, oh, that's weird. What, why are these two, like, random Austrian people having sex? And then you check the notes and oh, what? I can imagine that many people have noticed that Adolf Hitler was conceived during the Whitechapel murders, but I cannot imagine anyone other than Alan Moore putting it into a book about Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I mean, really, that's from hell in a nutshell, isn't it? The only person who has researched Jack the Ripper who is as brilliantly mad as Moore is Bruce Robinson, who published a 900-page book called They All Love Jack about his 12-year research project on Jack the Ripper. Um, and just, just, to, just to clarify, yes, 
that Bruce Robinson, the guy who wrote and directed with Neil and I. What? It's amazing. It's This is, I mean, I'd always had kind of an interest in the Jack the Ripper story because I live in Britain and it's like Churchill, Jack the Ripper and the royal family are the three inescapable topics in British life. Um, but when I when lockdown started last year, I thought, right, I can finally get some of the door stoppers off my bookshelf clear. And I read They All Love Jack, and I thought it was incredible. And by the end, I thought, I don't know if I've if I believe him or if I've just got Stockholm syndrome for spending nearly a thousand pages listening to Bruce Robinson rant on. But yeah, I am fairly convinced that the director of How to Get Ahead in Advertising has just solved the Jack the Ripper case. Oh my god, you know what that means? From hell to... <laughs> yes. I mean, no one else other than Moore is obsessive enough. But, yeah... I don't know. Uh, it's an odd thing because I, I'm aware that Robinson's account is very partial. Um, but there were bits of it where I, I did have that kind of irritating, that didn't happen. And of course, part of the point of From Hell as a book and a film is that this is just an interpretation and the truth is probably beyond recovery. But there are things like um, the, the From Hell letter which, was it the From Hell letter or the Dear Boss letter, the one with the segment of kidney in it, in the film arrives before Catherine Eddowes is murdered, even though that kidney supposedly came from Catherine Eddowes. And I thought, well, you know, you've... I can't understand why that's changed, because the truth is obviously more dramatic. You suddenly have this murder where part of the victim's kidney is uh, removed, and the next day a letter with a bit of kidney in it turns up. I don't know, that seemed more exciting than just, whoa, here's a kidney thrown at the screen. Yeah, it's again, I don't know, maybe it's just one of those things where it was originally and then edited after the fact and just they didn't catch the, the slip-up. Conceivably, yeah. I think by that stage of the film it's trying to, like, mortar through the last murders, which is... Understandable because there's been a lot of setup. Yeah, it's it's very much uh, kind of realizing we've only made it like a tiny fraction of the way into the novel, and we've got to wrap things up. Yeah, I liked uh, in in terms of other performances, I liked the late Ian Richardson again in one of his last performances as uh, Sir Charles Warren, who I, I think they do justice to what an absolute prat Charles Warren was. Yeah, see, I, I feel like without the full historical context, <laughs> I, I feel like even if it's not true to life, they maybe could have done with toning it down. Because he does just seem like such a ridiculous over-the-top villain. But also, yeah, I, guess I guess he was in like actual real life, so who knows? 
I think maybe they could have in, included the anecdote that made it clear that he was genuinely incompetent, which is that he, he said something like, um, oh, no one is allowed to act at a crime scene unless I am present uh, when it's one of the Ripper killings. And then he stood down from his post Meaning that on some of the late on one of the late murders, I forget which, the police were just sort of standing around helplessly, waiting for a man who they didn't know wasn't going to show up. I think that's actually why it became such a media sensation because the it, the press had the opportunity to get there en masse in a way that they wouldn't have done previously with the speed of communication and transport then because everyone was just standing around waiting for Charles Warren. Yes, and actually with that, I think actually what it was is was it was maybe more execution in the film. Mm. So I know he does have that one conversation with Abilene where he basically goes on and on about, oh yes, well the murder is probably Probably Jewish because no, no Englishman would ever do a killing like this. Yeah. Now, anyway, Avaline, when you go to the when you go to the crime scene, make sure you know investigate fully. Don't jump to any conclusions that the evidence don't point to. And I feel like that's intended as a look at this idiot hypocrite. Yeah. But I think it just it falls a bit flat in the film itself. I suppose it's part of the nature of compressing it when you have a character like Warren and you have, what, about three scenes that he's in? And you need to get across the entire scope of not just his bigotry, but his corruption. And it, it does mean that you have someone who's basically wheeled on to say, here are some more bad things, I believe. Yeah, yes, and I think that's... That's a better way of describing what my problem was, is it's just very much, he's one of those characters who, who feels less like a person and more just a convenient plot device. Yeah, definitely. One of the historical details that they do include that I thought was interesting is that uh, William Gull, by this stage, was a very elderly man who'd had multiple strokes. And... I like that that's in there normally because that is used as a way of explaining why he definitely, definitely couldn't be Jack the Ripper. Uh, but this movie just sails straight on past it. Yeah, I mean, there's even a scene where, like, Avalon visits him and he's, like, laid out on the sofa in a very, oh, no, I don't have long left type pose. Yes. And then he's just fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what a very odd thing. Um again, I think that is basically held together by the strength of the performance. Ian Holm, an actor who I absolutely adored in so many things, has a, a kind of conviction that almost persuades you that the ideas in Moore and Campbell's book are still in there somewhere. Even though I do have like a particular bee in my bonnet about Ian Holm, and it's absolutely nothing to do with him because he does put on a spectacular performance. Mm -hmm. But every time I read From Hell, I have a very clear picture in my head that Sir William Gull should be played by Jonathan Price. Oh, that would be great. I mean, Jonathan Price makes everything better, but yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe I'll reread it with that in mind. 
it is. I mean, it's just it's one of those things where that's so like crystallized in my mind. I just I can't see anyone else in the role now. I think the odd thing about home in the role, which they can't possibly have known, uh, given when this came out, is that they do that thing uh, that that often happens in otherwise quite naturalistic movies. It happens in Oliver Stone's Nixon. It happens in Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, where someone's eyes briefly flash black as they discuss something particularly evil. Uh, but because it's in home, all you can think is, oh, wait, does Abilene have the one ring in his pocket? Yes, like, that should just, as soon as he turns around, Iba Heron's going, bom, 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 dun, dun, dun. <laughs> from a piece of kidney yelling my precious <laughs> I mean actually that works quite well doesn't it it does it does <laughs> yeah I'm also I, I feel like one of the performances that was slightly wasted for me was Jason Fleming as John Netley because I like Jason Fleming he's a, he's a very good like very solid character actor in a lot of kind of TV stuff yeah. obviously in the comic, kind of the relationship between Gull and Netley is quite a big thing. But in this, he kind of just leers a lot. Yeah, although maybe it's just reading it with the comic in mind, but I thought out of all of the characters who had their roles gutted in trying to get this thing down to a reasonable runtime, I thought it came through more clearly with him. I mean, Netley is kind of a tragic character. You know, he's... He's got this job, which he probably imagines is the best job he's going to get because he's not an educated guy. He's not a well-born guy. And suddenly he's like valet and coachman to Queen Victoria's personal surgeon. Amazing. Brilliant. You know, it can't get better than that, except he is also a murderous psychopath with mystic delusions, which is less good. And yeah, I agree with you. I yeah, think Fleming plays that well. Yeah, and it's against that specific. I just, I wish we could have had the the chapter you mentioned earlier, where mm. it's just them going around London with Sir William explaining all his like absolute mad lad theories about <laughs> like occult symbolism and how it's all about the patriarchy, and just netly like slowly, me like going, oh god, what's what's going on? What have I got into? Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Fleming, as a jobbing character actor, just has the best anecdotes. Have you heard his one about being on the 2012 version of Great Expectations? Oh, I have not. Apparently he got on set and congratulated Helena Bonham Carter on her really spooky Miss Havisham costume before being told that Helena Bonham Carter actually hadn't been to wardrobe yet. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is great because it's one of those, of course she hadn't. Yes. Of course, Helen Ryan just shows up to set, like, in a wedding dress covered in spiders. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's that's absolutely delightful. And yes, yeah. I quite frankly, like I, I don't think it's going to get better than that. So, shall we bank this film? 
I think we should. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I I was looking because the previous two episodes I've been on have been about a very good film and a very not so good film. I was looking for a curious egg, and I think yeah, we got one, didn't we? Yes, exactly. Basically, you've come on the show today, and you know you don't want to rock the boat too much. Just have a nice like average episode of Behold. Completely, yeah. So what? Which is great because I've tricked you, Graham. Oh. Because you've been conned into once again being like the horrific harbinger of change. As you now get to take part in our brand new and improved ranking system. (laughs) So it was something that me and Mika brought up on the Invincible episode. It's something we've spoken about a lot. Like kind of off the show as well. Hmm. Is it's actually really bloody hard to compare films and TV shows. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, so we have in fact uh, tweaked the format of the show somewhat, in that we Ooh. now have two separate ranking lists. Okay. So we now have kind of divided into films and TV. So I figure before we rank from hell, I'll give a run through kind of the uh, the top and bottom five of our new film only list. Oh, nice. Yes. So. Uh, number one, as you very well know, is A History of Violence, Quite followed right by Road to Perdition at number two. Uh, the 2004 Hellboy at number three. Oh, just The Good Hellboy at number three. Followed by <laughs> yes. The Good Suicide Squad at number four. And okay. Black Widow at number five. Then at the bottom of the list, we have got... Uh, actually, let's count up. So, yes, we have uh, Zachary Snackery's Snyder Cut at number 19, (laughs) Edge of Tomorrow at number 20, the 2003 Hulk at number 21, 1990's Captain America at 22, at 23, 30 Days at Night, and at 24, guess bloody what? (laughs) Is it Howard the Duck? It is absolutely Howard the Duck. I feel like my job on this podcast is to bring balance to the force or something. Yes, certainly from your perspective, not all that much has changed since you were last on. (laughs) So here's the thing. What what is bang in the middle? What is the middliest thing you've done? Okay, so I guess bang in the middle, um, if it's 1 to 24, that's going to be number 12, is Blade. Okay, yeah, I mean, they, they both do feel very much part of a moment, don't they? You could, If you didn't know that they were both late 90s, early noughties films, I feel like you could tell. Yeah, they, they are very, like, kind of cultural timestamps. I mean, I think, I think From Hell is slightly better than Blade, although I don't know to what extent that is just because I prefer the source material. Yeah, it's. I would say certainly. From Hell as a work is better. But I also have a very big soft spot for Blade. So what's underneath? Because it's, it's got Blade. a bit of Wesley Snipes. 
Um, underneath Blade is uh, 2020's The Old Guard. Okay, yeah, I definitely think From Hell is better than The Old Guard. Yeah. I mean, The Old Guard has absolutely zero scenes of people just repeatedly trying to spin kick each other. So I'm very <laughs> happy to put From Hell above that. That makes sense. Yeah, should we make that its niche? Indeed we shall. So From Hell, you are now our new number 13. Oh, and that puts the list at a nice clean 25. Nice. A half century. Okay, well, I think that's the uh, the job done. So I guess yeah, all I think... that's left is to uh, wrap things up. Mm. So, if you've enjoyed uh, listening to the show, you can find more kind of just on the feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail, or you can follow us on Twitter at beholdpod. And Graham, where can people find you if they want to? Well, I write for The Geek Show and for Horrified, the British horror website. Um, I also make films myself, which is really exciting. That's a new thing that I've been doing, and I have something going on show at Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art towards the end of the year. I'm also on Letterboxd. Take a look for me on Letterboxd. I do a lot of good stuff on there. Lovely stuff. And uh, if you're a fan of the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcast app of choice or just recommended us to a friend. It's the best way for us to grow as a show and reach new listeners. So that's everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. And I've been Graham. So long and thanks for listening. Thank you.